Welcome back to the Grace in Common podcast, a podcast with four friends, four theologians from four different countries and three different continents. My name is Marinus de Jong, I'm pastor of the Oosterparkerk in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. With me today is James Aglinton, lecturer of Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh, and Grace Sutanto, a native of Indonesia and assistant professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Okay, so this week we are talking about a theology of place and thinking about how theology equips us to understand and make sense of where we come from, where we are. One of the, the things that we emphasize a lot in the podcast, we always do this at the beginning when we introduce it, and then also it informs our discussions a lot, is the fact that we come from these four different places as co-hosts of the podcast, um, between Europe, um, North America, and Asia. And I think one of the things that really binds us together as theologians who are so influenced by the neo-Calvinist tradition is that the tradition, you know, it emphasizes so much um, the idea that the world is a diverse place, um, but it helps us understand that diversity um, in light of God and, and what God is like. And that within neo-Calvinism emphasizes the idea of um, what we talk about a lot is organic diversity, or that the diversity that exists across the world can be viewed in uh, harmonious ways um, and in ways that are uh, that are very just fascinating to, to consider. Um, because the world itself can feel like it's well, inhabiting the world can feel like the diversity of place that's out there of where you come from, and how it shapes you can feel very jarring. Um, so we thought this week would be interesting to talk about a theology of place in the first place. And there are a few ways that we could approach this, so maybe that we will in the discussion. I'm always curious to know what um, what each of you will, will say about that this week. Um, so one way that we could approach the, the idea of a theology of place and making sense of, of locations and, and where you're from and how they shape you is um, through the doctrine of creation. So a major feature of neo-Calvinist theology. Um, but another way that I've been thinking about it lately is through quite a novel concept within the tradition from J.H. Bavinck and from his book Personality and Worldview. Uh, so that's a book that he wrote in 1928 and it was it's been kind of forgotten over the last few decades but i've translated it and the and it's the first english translation it comes out next year with crossway and there's a distinction that i've mentioned before on the podcast in our episode on worldview in that book which is a distinction between the concept of worldview and what jh bavink calls world vision and the the provocative claim in this book is that although worldviews are real and although they guide cultures and animate the life of, of civilizations, um, it's nonetheless also the case that very few individuals really uh, grapple with a worldview in a very like, logical, consistent, coherent way. And actually, in the lives of most people, the overwhelming majority of people, you see fleeting glimpses of the worldview that animates the culture that they come from. But it's all, you know, they're fleeting glimpses. So, um, so you need some, you need another concept of worldview in order to talk about place, actually, and, and about the way that you are formed within a community. And for him, that's the concept of, of world vision. And the idea of world vision is that 
the place that you come from um and that is the like the geography of the place but also the culture of the place the society um the language the the culture your family units the educational system all of those things um, sink down very deeply into you and give you a basic set of intuitions about both the world and life and your life so as well as the world vision concept he also has a life vision concept and so your, your world vision for him is a set of coordinates um, that show you where you come from in the world. They give you a sense of place and help you make sense of that as, as a good starting point in life. Because the place that you are from, the, the world vision that you have in the first place is, is actually a common grace gift of God. It's that God gives you somewhere to belong. And that, that's a good thing for him. So, you know, for Gray, having a, like an Indonesian world vision to begin with, or Marinus with a Dutch world vision, let's say, or me with a Scottish one, um, that, that's actually a good thing. And it's a, and it's a tool to start thinking about um, the place that you come from and how it has formed you. Um, but the thing with world vision uh, for J.H. Bavink is that world vision isn't enough um, because it's, it's basically a set of like untested presuppositions about life on the world that you get from the place that you're from, the community and so on. Um, but it's uh, but it's purely subjective and you actually need to put those things to the test. And that's true for everyone, whichever place you're from and how it has formed you. And that means then that the challenge that Christianity sets for everyone, every individual in the world is that you have to progress um, on the basis of that place where you're from and how it forms you or forms a world vision within you to put its claims to the test in order to progress toward towards the wisdom of an objective worldview and i think this is a really fascinating part of the conversation about place in in neo-calvinism because it sets us up to think about well what what would it mean for example for someone from indonesia to have um, a distinct world vision from there and progress towards a Christian worldview. And, and then what would it mean for someone from the United States or someone from the Netherlands or someone from Scotland? Um, if, we're all, if we're all orienting ourselves in the same process of seeking wisdom towards um, you know, how to be the, the kind of best version of, of who you are in God's providence and where you're from, also in line with the theology of place, um, how, how does that account for diversity? Um, so, for example, will an Indonesian Christian worldview be exactly the same as an American one or, or, a, or a Dutch one or a Scottish one? Yeah, that's a great point, James. And that distinction between world vision and worldview is so key because, you know, I've been reading William James Jennings' Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race. And he makes the crucial point there that there's a link between colonialism and what I would call, you know, what you would call and what J.H. Blavin would call a world vision. He basically argues that the, the source of colonialism is to use your, to use J.H. Bobbing's term, world vision, as a way to adjudicate on another person's world vision, uh, mistaking your world vision with the Christian worldview, and then using that particular world vision to say that this is the standard. And when, when the colonialists moved to the new world, they said, you're not meeting up with my world vision, and my world vision just is the Christian worldview, and so therefore we must do our best to educate you to enforce our own cultural vision and our world vision on you. And, and he had a pretty scathing critique of what uh, has come to be known as natural law theory, 
and also even of Alasdair MacIntyre's traditioned reasoning. Now, Alasdair MacIntyre, as lots of us know, has this understanding of reasoning as tradition, that ultimately we come from particular traditions and actually tradition reasoning opens up new vistas of imagination and leads us to self-criticism. But, but, but there is no sort of neutral place that, that comes from a particular Christian tradition that, that we all have to reason from. And, and Jennings is saying that's fine, it's good as it goes, but you got to realize that you can't confuse capital T tradition with your tradition. And what happened is in, in the 14th, 15th centuries, he used the, the example of Jose de Acosta, this Thomas Jesuit missionary who, who came to uh, South America. Well, it wasn't South America at the time, but, but the, the Andean areas. And, 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 and what, what Jose de Acosta ended up arguing is that his education just is the exemplification of natural philosophy and natural law. And what he was encountering, therefore, was not in touch with nature. And therefore, he didn't view the colonialist project as a kind of Western imperial project trying to impose itself on an alien foreign place, but rather as simply imbuing moral and natural principles into people out of touch with it. So that he confused natural law with his own particular upbringing. And I thought that was incredibly uh, apt for Jennings to point out. And, you know, Protestants can also be guilty of that. It's not just the Thomas of the 15th, 16th centuries or 14th centuries, right? Protestants can also confuse their world vision with, uh, with the Christian worldview or with natural law with a capital N and L, right? And therefore miss that what they're doing is actually imposing their particular little cultures and confusing that with natural law. Uh, and, and actually, we, what we need to do is negotiate between these diversities of intuitions rather than actually confusing our own particular vision with the worldview itself, if that makes sense. I wonder what you all think about that. That's very, very potent, I thought. Yeah, I totally agree, Gray. And it's, I think it's also like it even becomes more important um, in, in, in the, the current debates we have about race and about colonialism and and how how we we get a much clearer sight on those issues and how, how that is how also the history of the church is is in, in, in all kinds of problematic ways um um has, has has played a role in it at least in in the, in the dutch context today there is also also churches um well I, I i live in amsterdam that's a city who has had a major role um in like the history of slavery and you could say that all the beautiful buildings in the city where I live in were built with money made um, with slave trade, and it's not an exaggeration. And the church also played a role in that. And you see, the, ch the churches today are struggling with that past and trying to to find a way to to deal with it, to to maybe make apologies or to yeah. Um, so yes, yeah. So something I I I really like about uh, the new Calvinist tradition, this respect, is. Um, it's this, I think it's a lecture by Kuiper. I think it was translated. It's called um, uh, "Uniformity and the Curse of Modern Life." Is, is it in the Is it in the, the Reader? I think it's in the in the Reader. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's in the Reader. In Brad's uh, in Brad's Reader, um, and it's it's really a, a, a beautiful piece. It's because um, because Kuiper roots the idea of pluriformity um, in creation, so that God has like given all these different kinds 
created all these different kind of cultures and maybe not right at the beginning but in how creation developed which is part of god god's intention uh, with creation and then he shows how um modernity as as he calls it always tries and he he he, he um he lays the roots of that movement in the French Revolution. That, that was for Kuiper always a, a point of reference for modernity. Um, how they always want to impose a kind of uniformity on the world um, from from the top, uh, and then trying to 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 move to the edges or move away or maybe even completely destroy the pluriformity that God has created. And with the French Revolution, you can see it very clearly. And for example, the way how. Um, the French government wanted to make France into a uniform country. Uh, all the, lang the local languages in France were removed, or at least they, they tried to remove them. Now they are struggling to keep these languages alive. Um, they were pretty successful, unfortunately, at doing that. Um, and, and you see that, I think, in history with all kinds of, uh, with all dictators um, who try to impose this uniformity on, uh, on a country, on a culture, which is unnatural and also not 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 creation and we i think we we could very easily also uh, i i'm not sure if kuiper did that but also uh, today at least um, um say this about colonialism um and about uh all the racist uh well racist traits of cultures in the past and 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 also today just ignoring how god created the pluriform world um mm -hmm. and not respecting the beauty of that um and also the way in which all those cultures, that's, that's something Kuiper says beautifully, also reflect something James also mentioned at the beginning, reflect who God is um, mm -hmm. and, and can teach us also how to worship God in different ways. Um, and it's, it's, it's also complicated at the same time. Um, Schilder was known for, um, for criticizing this notion of pluriformity. And I mean, not fundamentally um, the concept of it, um, but at least also that, that if you emphasize pluriformity too much, especially when it comes to the church, and that was Schilder's critique, um, you may end up disregarding that God also calls for unity, um, especially in the church. Schilder uh, liked to, to refer to John 17. Um, it's actually a text that's on his, um, is, is on his grave that, that God's call for unity is also very important. And that's just also something that, that is sometimes complicated. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. I, um, I I live in a in a highly multicultural neighborhood, um, and it's just not easy to worship together with all those different cultures because the worship styles are so different. So when I attend, it's really beautiful, and it can teach it does teach me things about who God is. But at the same time, it's difficult to be one because our ways of worshiping are so completely different. Um, so, and I guess it's it's also important to acknowledge that there is a kind of eschatological um, well, reservation maybe on this point that 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 so that there, there is also brokenness in the pluriformity and the, and that in the way at least that unity and pluriformity cannot completely go together. That the pluriformity of life um, is something that also hinders um, the unity we have in Christ. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's worth emphasizing that pluriformity. Is, is creational, but it also develops over time, right? Um, and, and it could be a hindrance because of sin, but technically speaking, you know, Bovink mentions this and argues for it. Um, pluriformity is creational in the sense that when human beings spread all over the globe and as they are fruitful and they multiply, 
there's a kind of natural diversification of the human race, right? Where each tribe, language, and people develop in a particular place as they spread out. And so you wouldn't expect one person on the other side of the globe to think and speak the same way as another person on, on the other side. And especially without you know, globalization, without the ease of travel, without the internet, as Bobbing couldn't have envisioned the kind of travel and the access that we have here today, he saw, therefore, this diversification as not necessarily sinful, but a natural outworking of God's blessing and God's mandate in Genesis 1 and 2, but also as God's response to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And James could speak more about that because he has written a wonderful essay on multilingualism about that. And that really dovetails well with what Jennings also calls the geographically sustained identities that is race. Race is not essential in the sense that it's not essentialism that we're propounding here when we talk about race. That would be the 18th, 19th century sort of Enlightenment colonialist project that says that each race is essentially different from another race, almost kind of capturing each race as a species, entirely different species from one another. So if it's not essentialism, then what is race? Well, Jennings argues that it's about geographically sustained identities. It's about a particular location that has determined a culture of a specific people. And that's actually what accounts for the differences, not essentially biological roots, but rather geographically sustained roots. And I think that's quite insightful. And so Bobbing's comment would be, in the kingdom of God, all of these diversifications in light of different places actually complements harmoniously one another. And he therefore argues that it is Calvinism that can actually accommodate this sort of plurality, pluriformity. Because in Calvinism, you see the writing of different confessions and the future of Calvinism, he said, this is why we have the Westminster Standards as different than the, the Canons of Dort and the Three Forms of Unity, and also the Genevan Catechisms, Lutheran Catechisms. All of these are actually reflecting a different place, a different culture, a different time, different needs. And yet there's a unity in the confession of God in all of it, right? The sovereignty of God and things like that. And his critique of Roman Catholicism is that Roman Catholicism is a contradiction because Catholicity means universality. And Rome is localized. And it's, it's, again, the curse of uniformity of wanting to impose a sort of uniform liturgy and tongue and language on every location. Um, and that's actually the contradiction of Roman Catholicism, whereas Calvinism wants to say, hey, every nation can express its individuality, its own character, precisely because each location determines a specific kind of need and a specific kind of emphasis that is different from one another. Yeah, so one way that I would like to, I guess, focus the discussion a, a bit as well on the doctrine of creation for Hermann Bavink is um, that he has a repeated emphasis in his writings in, in various places on um, how Christianity makes us feel at home in the world. And I think the clearest example of this is in Reformed Dogmatics, and he's playing with Calvin's image of scripture or special revelation being like a pair of spectacles and when you put them on you see things more clearly um they, they just give this greater acuity to to your perspective and there's one point in reform dogmatics where bavink says that when we wear this like the the lenses of scripture the spectacles of scripture we then and, and scripture being special revelation we then see general revelation more clearly, uh, more sharply. And with that, he says, we begin to feel more at home in the world. 
And I think that, so there, there is a lot that you could unpack in how that statement works, that, that Christianity um, through scripture makes you feel more at home in this place. Um, part of I me, mean, most fundamentally, you feel more at home in it because you realize that it's a creation in relation to a creator and that this is where you are made to be, that, that we are made for, uh, we're made to inhabit God's creation. And as creatures, we're not homeless. In fact, God has given us this um, spectacular universe um, to inhabit, so this, this world to live within. But I think another aspect of learning to feel at home in the world, um, in the cosmos for Bavink through Christianity, is that the world itself is, can be a really jarring place to inhabit. And in a way that's already come across a bit in our discussion, where the, the pluriformity in the world can be a really troubling thing if you don't know how to find the unity that it was made for and that it longs for, even though in, this, in the fallen world that we live in now, that unity is, or that harmony is really lacking. And in fact, there's this tremendous diversity in the world, but the diversity out there, which as Gray was saying there in his comment on race is really rooted in locally sustained communities and identities. That seemed, that's the cause of so much war and strife and, and destruction in the world. So how can you learn to feel at home within that? Um, so the way that I, that I think for Bavink, Christianity makes you feel at home in the world is that it draws you back to a doctrine of creation where the pluriformity is baked into the creation. And it's actually a good expectation to have of the world that God has made, that even without sin, it was made to diversify continually. And that's actually a, an unfolding of the general revelation of God, that God is, um, you know, that God is not so, um, that the God is not so kind of exhaustively revealed just in the, the creation at the beginning, but in fact, the creation is constantly expanding in ways that glorify God expansively. So it draws you back to the doctrine of creation in the first place, where you actually, you do expect um, diversification also of, of place making, shall we say, um, as the scene for culture making. Um, but also uh, Christianity gives you an account of why that has gone so badly wrong um, for the human race and why, like, like Gray was saying, um, the, the, way that, the ways that place um, means that we hate each other and the places become centers of opposition and, and hatred and lack of love for other people in their other places. So it gives us ways to understand why this has gone wrong, but it also gives us a vision of, again, of place, of, of, our, of our true home, of con the consummation of creation, of a new heavens and a new earth. And, and all of that does, uh, like, it really functions to make you feel at home here for, for Herman Bavink. Yeah, and that, that sense of remaking place, James, is, again, dovetailing so well with my reading in Jennings right now, because he actually argues that one of the origins of race, of our race consciousness or race talk is precisely in displacement. That precisely because, you know, um, native Indians and black Africans were displaced from their geographically sustained identities. And they were suddenly relocated in a particular new place, whether it's through slaveholding and, and forced labor and things like that. Um, their sense of identity was taken away from them. Their culture was taken away from, from them or Indonesians in our case, right? And um, therefore their skin color was made to stand on itself. 
that suddenly they don't have their particular location to determine their identities, but rather they're only isolated in this new world or in their new location and isolated by means of their skin color. And so suddenly they weren't identified by their place in the, in the, in the tribe or their place in the particular mountain they were in, but rather they were now suddenly the black male or the black female in a white community. They are now the brown person in a white community. And so, so much of the, the sin of colonialism is precisely the displacement of persons and therefore the forcing of skin color to stand by itself, which created a sort of race consciousness and therefore a connection between traits and skin color rather than traits with geographically determined identities. And, and how do we therefore, I guess a question that arises out of that is, given the, the kind of globalized scale and immediate access and this sort of consciousness that place determines so much of what we take for granted, how do we think about theology and the replacement or rather the replacing, the, 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 the placement of theology within localization, given the, the kind of globalized context that we live in here today? How do we think about that? And how does neo-Calvinism help if it, if it does? Wow, what a great question, Gray. Um, I guess when I think about this personally, um, existentially, so my sense of place is, um, it's kind of spread out. So my, my own family uh, on my mother's side is um, a Celtic from the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, Gaelic speaking. So that's a really rural agrarian um, culture um, that has a very distinct sense of place. You know, you're really rooted to the, the, the like part of the island that your family comes from that's reflected in your dialect. Um, so you have a really strong sense of um, place there. And the other side of my family is, is urban, um, English-speaking, Central Belt Scottish um, that is, is not at all agrarian. And those senses of place are really different and they go with senses of um, culture and cultural sensibilities that are very different as well. Um, when I try and think of how to make sense of place theologically though, across these two sides of my family, um, there are lots of com complex factors there, like um, Gallic culture having been historically oppressed by English-speaking culture in the UK and in Scotland. And um, now then thinking about, well, what does it mean to, to like maintain a, a Gallic identity or like, a, again, a sense of rootedness and a sense of place and belonging within that culture? Um, in the 21st century. And so I find that there's particularly in like secular spaces, again, secular places in, in Scotland, there's, there's, a, there's like a lot of readiness to allow some space for Gaelic people to be publicly Gaelic in a very restrictive performative way. Um, you know, so can you wear a kilt? You know, would you sing a Gaelic song for us? Um, can you read a poem? Can you teach me how to say, you know, good morning, how are you? And that's it. Um, but there's far less space that's given um, to, for example, a, a kind of distinctive indigenously Gallic epistemology or, or just the, the more, a Gallic culture is very conservative and is also deeply Christian. Um, 
that aspect of being Gaelic is not really celebrated um, or, or, or welcomed into the fold in kind of mainstream secular Scottish culture, Anglo culture. Um, and I think neo-Calvinism um, makes me push back against that. And, and, it, and it makes me think about, it makes me a bit more cynical of the, just the performative, um, hey, come and give us a song and dance from your native culture. And we're happy to receive those bits, but not the parts that are epistemologically more uncomfortable to secular sensibilities. And I think, so neo-Calvinism gives me um, epistemological commitments that, that make me actually reject the restricted performative flattened out way of you know having a rootedness in place and culture and, and identity and because for me that's not rich enough in thinking about um why those cultures and places exist um and you know it, it makes me think a lot about um other minority cultures and languages as well which i think are also you know they're, they're included again in like some in, in fairly shallow performative ways by a lot of secular um, progressive Western people, um, you know, bring us your national cuisine. You know, we're happy for you to dress in colorful things um, and for you to, um, you know, again, bring your songs and your instruments or, or whatever, but um, don't bring a fundamentally different way of viewing the world. Um, don't bring don't bring an epistemolo epistemology that's that's not a, a secular individualistic westernized one and so that and that even happens within the west and, and and which for me is all an extension of how i think about place theologically as well really makes me hold on to gallic culture as a distinct place yeah thank you james it's it's interesting to hear your perspective i think we we all are kind of um uprooted from where we are from, well, the, 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 the simple fact that we are having this podcast that I'm speaking in English right now and not in Dutch, not my native language, uh, that I live in a city where I wasn't born, where my family never lived. Uh, it all shows that, I think. Um, yeah, what I have to think of personally is, is again, I, I briefly mentioned earlier, is the, the neighborhood where I live. And I live in the Belmer. It's probably the most, uh, the neighborhood, like with the most non-Western migrants of people with a non-Western migrant background, as, as we call it. Um, and I think it, for me, it has been formative to live in this neighborhood. I've been living there for three years now. Um, and, and I think also neo-Calvinism helps me to do that, to, to, to like on the one hand, um, completely understand and acknowledge that I live among different cultures there's especially Suriname culture which is a former Dutch colony uh, in, in, in Southern America there's a lot of people from there who live here now all my neighbors are from there but there is also a big African community especially from uh, especially Ghanese um, so this helps me to to see their culture not as uh, as as inferior from my culture which is what a lot of groups in my society do and they say these people don't belong here and they, they shouldn't be here. Um, it's like the right wing um, political parties and, and those who support them say that. Um, so that on the one hand, I can I can oppose that and also in my daily life uh, do that, just like engage with them. And every time I stumble upon differences, which happens all the time with my neighbors, because we are we have different cultures. Um, I have my Dutch culture with my 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 um my eating habits that that's a very pronounced difference uh, but also the way the, the schedule of your day looks like is very different um uh, the way we look at time 
uh, in general is different and in, and in practice that that can be difficult sometimes and and it, it it can lead to irritation also from both sides um so this helps me this that this is really something this pluriformity is something god wanted um and therefore it's my vocation to completely respect that and and also be aware that i am part of pluriformity and they are as well um and we are we're both human and we both reflect god in different ways so that really like helps and encourages me to continue to well to live here and, and to engage and to try to overcome those cultural differences on the other hand um i also i'm not naive in the sense that uh, i say that it doesn't matter or that these cultural differences are not there uh, because i think that's that's something on the other end of the spectrum which in 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 some left-wing parties is said that they just say that it's almost like um ignore the differences say they aren't really there um and that that it's not difficult to live with different cultures together that's ignoring um that's ignoring the pluriformity in another way and ignoring that we are very connected to our to our culture and to our place and the way we are the way we are shaped um and also of course the doctrine of sin helps in that because it's not only creational pluriformity there's also an aspect of sin and 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 there's a deep in Christianity, there's a deep conscience that there's, there, well, there's again this eschatological reservation. There's always something where we're going to when there's not going to be sin anymore and when, the, when there's, there's going to be no more problems, but problems are to be expected um, and, and difficulties also. So I think these two help me to keep a balanced view um, and, and in which the, the neo Calvinist inspiration is, is, is very helpful um, for living in the neighborhood I live in. You know, I was thinking about writing a blog post recently about uh my, my mother was here we just had a daughter of course so she was here for a month and i was thinking of titling this blog post my mother's battle against google <laughs> because she would come in and she's you know chinese indonesian she's talking about a theology of place right she grew up in a context where she was always in the same neighborhood same family for a long time without any internet without any international travel because she didn't grow up with with resources for that kind of stuff and so she she's always grown up with her broader family she's had a lot of brothers and sisters and she was you know she had access to her grandparents and they're all kind of living in the same neighborhood and things like that and so she would give us all of these sort of traditional chinese remedies for the the baby's uh many uh distresses right so if she's having the hiccups she would cut a little piece of tissue cloth and place it on her head because somehow this would cure her hiccups or if the baby is, um, you know, before 40 days old, you have to not cut the, the baby's hair. Or maybe it was you have to cut her hair. I can't remember exactly what the tradition is. But apparently, if, if you don't do something to the baby's hair, then somehow the mother's blood would still be uh, in her or something like that. I can't remember exactly. But all kinds of um, traditional Chinese remedies for, again, all these babies' distresses. And oftentimes, my response is, mom our doctors don't do that and um if you just google there's a cure for hiccups here's what you do right and so she would always always say oh i don't even know what google is why would you trust google over your mother right and um so her battle against google is and she she actually had many rants throughout her month-long stay where she would basically say google is so problematic because now none of the kids are listening to their parents when we have uh, centuries 
old of wisdom that we're trying to pass on down to you. And so I think that particular generational difference, as I was thinking about it, isn't so much a, a generational gap as it is also a westernized sort of worldview that I was inhabiting. I had this understanding that every person is an individual. I had immediate access to the facts. And it's really through empirical study that we can actually gain expertise in it. And so if Google is collating experiential uh, um, evidence to the, to the facts of the matter, right, then that's a reliable way of gaining knowledge, more reliable than just listening to authority. And so I guess the question to me again, as I've, I've continued to wrestle with this, is that in what sense then can we accommodate these different sort of instincts? And, and if I'm really criticizing myself, right, as my worldview of immediate access or world vision, perhaps, of immediate access to the facts, of immediate access to knowledge and, and an appeal to experiential um, um, evidence as the authority for knowledge, is that really more Christian than the sort of communal understanding of knowledge that my mother has? And as I was challenged by that, I was thinking to myself, am I thinking that, that you know, why am I disagreeing with her so much? Is it because I'm more Christian and she's not a Christian? But, you know, she is. She's been listening to a lot of you know, Christian sermons, even when she was here, and she's, I think, converting from Catholicism to Christianity in, in a lot of ways. She's got her own faith journey, right? And, and why am I so, therefore, impatient with my mother if this is really about Western versus a more Eastern or communal understanding of epistemology? And I think if we don't have a sort of pluriform view of the Christian faith, all you're going to end up with is saying, my view is more natural and hers is less natural, or, you know, some kind of universalized sort of rationality against a sort of myopic rationality. How can you have a, a worldview or a, a more capacious vision of life, a more capacious view of life that accommodates for these different kinds of epistemologies, like you said, and not just a performative kind? Because I'm guessing, you know, if we had my mother or anyone else from that sort of culture live in a westernized world, we're happy to eat their food. We're happy to see their song and dance. But can it actually challenge our epistemologies of immediate Googleize, Googleizing? Is that a word? You Googleizing? Is that from Zoolander? It's from Zoolander. Or, that's right. You, you, you Googleizing is Amazing. Oh, you Google is great. That's great. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Um, and are we actually neglecting the more communal aspects of life that she's reminding me of? That, you know, at the end of the day, she's, she would remind me, you're Chinese Indonesian, and that's never going to change. You know, and, and um, you got to you got to be able to, to, to learn from these sort of cultural virtues that, that you grew up with. So I think this is something that's really interesting in J.H. Bavink and personality and worldview. The idea that there, like, there's not an abstract Christian worldview that exists completely free from cultures. Um, instead, the move towards a Christian worldview is a process of refining, again, your home coordinates of um, putting to the test everything that your local place has told you about how to make sense of life and the world and God. And that means that, um, I guess, if you're thinking in his, um, with his approach in mind, whatever kind of Christian worldview you're trying to pursue, you actually have to be really self-aware that you're doing so somewhere and in a particular cultural location rather than it being again a neutral thing um like I've, I've over the last couple of years i've done a lot of online reading of a lot of um, us-based christian slash biblical worldview material 
And if you look at the specifics and the contours of what it means to have a biblical worldview, it's always expressed in very concrete local issue terms that you will think this about, uh, and then it'll be something to do with US politics or this about like US, something that's very specific and locally American. Um, and then, you know, I'm not American. So I read that stuff and think, okay, well, you know, in the UK, we have a completely different healthcare system. Um, so the, the US or the, the, um, like the biblical worldview stuff that I get from American websites doesn't really, like it's not applicable here. Um, we have a completely different culture and different cultural issues. So um, it would be so helpful when you read that kind of material, if it would specify, this is an American Christian worldview. And that's fine to, to give it the local label. In fact, it needs to have that, at least if you're thinking in J.H. Bavinck's way. Um, so in that kind of, I guess it circles back to the question that I asked at the very beginning of the episode. Um, if we're thinking in terms of world visions and world views, um, is, it the, is it the case that, that there's no generic Christian worldview? Instead, it's a pursuit towards, uh, towards God, um, towards God as the one who has the objective truth about life and the world uh, and all the different places and diversities and cultures that exist within it? Or is it actually that, you know, an Indonesian Christian will have exactly the same Christian worldview, if it's if it's a true Christian worldview as an American? Or, and is that even possible, given that the cultures that people inhabit are just so different? You know, th there is no vacuum. That's right. Uh, I think for me it goes along with how neo-Calvinism is... Um, is so powerful in its critiques of the, the idea of neutrality. Uh, there is no neutrality uh, anywhere actually in the world. It's every culture is, a, is like a positive attempt to state things and to, to inhabit space, to create space. Yeah, and so we gotta be careful because oftentimes our claims for the Christian worldview or the view of natural law is actually masking our own culture, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just let, let me let, let me ask you one question. I'm looking forward to hear what you think about that. Um, so I, I briefly mentioned this earlier, also, but so I, I'm I'm just thinking about how this plays into our our our, our ecclesiology about how we view the church. So, um, I think Kuiper said something was always critical of the Roman Catholic Church, and, and Gray mentioned something about that, saying that. It, it tried to be like a uniform church um, disregarding all the cultural differences in different countries. If that's true, that, that's maybe not a question, but it definitely has a part of that. If you celebrate mass wherever in the world, it will be very similar, apart from the language and some minor differences. Um, on the other hand, it does reflect a kind of eschatological unity uh, that all Christians we would also acknowledge and neo-Calvinism would acknowledge across borders. And there is a way in which we, we are part of our heavenly fatherland, which is in many ways more important than the, the, the culture or the place we live in or we grew up in or the culture that shaped us. Um, so I guess my question is, what, what does it say for, what is the implication for the church? So should, should it ideally be like one global Protestant church, which has all these differences uh, because of cultural difference, but also reflect something of the of the unity in Christ, of of the of the of the coming unity also, the eschatological unity, and also the unity in the present, because the kingdom is already here. Um, and it's of course we are very far from that ideal because the churches are split it uh, so much. But is it something that we should aspire and and also should 
shoot here in Amsterdam, all the all the there's there's many churches with migrant backgrounds, and there's the more traditional churches. Um, should they should they be one church? Is that something we should aspire, or is it just and is it just something that we can um, that we that we should we should be separate maybe because of the differences in creation? What do you guys think about that? So I'm gonna talk utopianly in an idealized way while acknowledging that this is very, very hard to achieve, right? So I think speaking utopianly, we have to affirm the priority of theological unity. I do think that given what we know from our, our Protestant confessions, right, that there is the sufficiency of scripture and the clarity of scripture and emphases in scripture, therefore are binding on every Christian, we have to talk about a confessional theological unity. And I do think that Protestants have a better view of unity than Roman Catholicism because we have a conciliar creedal confessional unity rather than a sort of lineage of apostolic succession or something like that, right? And so we want to affirm that kind of theological unity, but how might we express and live out that theology in our different cultural expressions and, and how to intuitively argue towards that kind of theology might be a different way of, of, of inhabiting our places, even though we have the same theology, different intuitions, different cultural expressions toward that theology um, could sh and should be accommodated. Schilder would be proud of you, Gray. So uh, it's a really, so I think part of that answer to the question as well is something that neo-Calvinists have debated and come and reached, reached different conclusions on as well. Uh, Bavink and Kuiper wrestled with this in questions about um, like the, like, um, uh, questions around, for example, like language diversity in the church. If you have a group of people who speak Dutch and a bunch who speak Indonesian, should you have, can, can you have two di different church services? Should you have two different denominations even, or just one? Um, there was a really interesting article that came out a few years ago in the Journal of Reformed Theology by Andrew Ong, um, O-N-G, who was a PhD student in Edinburgh. He's now a pastor in Berkeley um, on this issue where he was using neo-Calvinist resources to argue that actually it's a good thing to have um, ethnic churches. And he was arguing this from as, as a like, Chinese American um, reformed theologian. Uh, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, this has been a really, as, as always, a fascinating conversation to, to be part of. Um, we thank you to the listeners for joining us. Um, please do uh, rate the app, subscribe to it in whatever podcast app you use. Uh, but for now, this is Grace in Common.